We're going to go ahead and start diving in Numbers 15, and um, we're going to catch up just a little bit. I just I threw this; it's always up, and we can get more copies if you need it, as I mentioned. And this is in the Wilderness Paran. I just want to place this real quickly uh, where we're at in the drawing. You're not going to see. I was mentioned. I don't see much of 15 mentioned because it kind of gets tucked in between two major movements. Because as we move from 16 through 19, and that, then we're traveling. And really, the, interestingly enough, is this little portion here, few chapters, covers like almost 40 years of their history. Because God, in His wisdom and His grace and, 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 and all-knowingness, doesn't record a lot of what took place in the 40 years because the purpose of the 40 years was to have a generation die off. Um, but 15 is this interesting chapter that uh, commentators would struggle with. Some do. Some can see the purpose. I think the purpose is very clear. Uh, why it's put right there in Numbers, what it's trying to tell us. And what it's trying to tell us is to remember. Uh, it's a reminder. It is a chapter that has a lot of rules. It has reminders about offerings and what's going to take place. It's going to address this idea of sin, unintentional, intentional sin. It's going to deal with what they wear. But the whole premise of chapter 15 is to remember or remind them of something, and then it, it's going to drive them to see, and I'm going to say this over and over again, one of the things is, you completely fail in life, and that's Israel right now. I mean, colossal, drastic failure, where what you are shooting for, you will never have. This generation is not going to enter the promised land. They're going to die in the desert. That is what they're going to do. They have been pardoned. So I want to remind us, and we'll touch on it a little bit, when Moses prays for him, God says, I'm going to pardon them. But this chapter 15 is after all that takes place. And then we're in this idea of being reminded. And I, I put as a, a note, it is surprising how forgetful we are. With every technological asset at our fingertips, we still have a host of things slip our mind. And I think we'd all say we'd love to pretend we outgrow it, right? Because kids need reminding. I don't know about you, but well... I hope you're not where I am with the dog situation. I have four dogs. I have a pack of dogs at my house. Um, and so if you come to my house, there's a five-acre lot with, with a pack of dogs on it. I have four cats too, but they don't make as much noise as the dogs. But with my pack of dogs, and two of them being within a year, one of them's four months, the other one's a year old, and then I got a four-year-old mini golden doodle, designer dog. I'm going to say it once. It's on recording. I hate small dogs. Um, I didn't know I would, but I do. Um, and I try to love her. Uh, well, I like her. I don't love animals, but I like animals. Uh, Dustin Hobbs told me, you have four dogs. You can never say you like dogs anymore. You, you have to claim love dogs. Um, but she's four years old, but she will eat any shoe she can get a hold of. She has ruined, in this summer, eight pairs of shoes. We're at eight pairs. We're lucky if she unlaces the shoes because we just buy new laces. And so I have anywhere from a 17-year-old down to an 8-year-old, and in the middle of those are two girls. Girls are amazing. You know that. If you're a parent, you know girls are responsible. They can find keys. They know where things are. They can cook meals. If you've had boys, and I'm one of them, they're basically useless. I mean, just, I always say, if you want to, you send a boy to find their own hat on their head, they cannot find it, right? So my 8-year-old, has this tendency to shed 
clothing outside, like shoes, socks, it just disappears, water bottles, hats, if it gets warm, shirt. And so I'm constantly reminding Clayton, bring in your shoes, otherwise the dog will eat them. He has Crocs that are chewed up, and we said, until you outgrow them, you're not getting new ones, because we're not buying you new Crocs, don't leave them out there. Um, clothes that exit the house is my rule, I need to come back in with you. A few months ago, I found a, a random kid sock in my shop. Just, there it is. And here's the amazing thing. My, I guess, yeah, is he eight? I don't even know how old he is. That's terrible. No, he's seven. Avery's eight. My eight-year-old daughter told me that's the missing sock. We've been looking for that for months. And I'm like, wow, that's, Im that's impressive there. Uh, teenagers, if you have teenagers, they need to be reminded of things immediately after you tell them. I've learned that one. That's the new, like, hey, can you get that? And then... You wait five minutes, you're like, hey, did you, did you miss that I told you to go get that? And they're like, oh, I forgot. I'm like, really? Like, that fast? That, like, you literally, you didn't even hear it. You, there's no way you heard it. You couldn't forget it. You didn't listen. You know, no, I listened to you. That's, I, I listened. I just forgot. And I'm like, okay. And I'd love to think, man, it's just kids and teens that struggle. But I work with adults. And I remind adults all the time. And so then I, I realize how bad I am. And I remember I constantly need reminding as well. And here's the reason I say all that. As humans, we tend to forget. Our mind wanders off, and you might say, well, some of us uh, are better at remembering than others. And that's probably true, but I'm going to venture a guess that all of us struggle with remembering what is eternally significant. And here's the danger with adult forgetfulness. We end up justifying it. A teen apologizes. I forgot. Sorry. Kids, well, I don't know what they're thinking, but they, they, they at least act like they're, you know, Clay acts desperate to go get his shoes after I tell him, so he, he responds. But as adults, we tend to say, well, you know, I have so many things to remember. I, I, can't, I can't keep track of everything. They give themselves the right to forget. And so I want us to get a grip of something in our mind. And so we joke with kids. We go to teens. We go to adults. We talk about remembering, and everyone is at varying levels there. But as humans, we have a propensity to forget. We tend to move off or move out of our brain what doesn't relate to us, that, 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 that points to God, that points to eternity, because we have a propensity to worship self. That's pride, it's Satan's fall, it's I want the glory, and that is what humanity struggles with. And so we're going to tend to dive into who we are, and that forgetfulness becomes the playground of the enemy. Why? Because it ultimately obscures truth and we forget what God and who God is and what God has done. So as we dive into chapter 15, I want us to get a picture of what God is doing. God is reminding Israel of laws to be obeyed. He's reminding them of his promises. And I don't want you to miss this in 15. 15 is going to make this underlying promise to Israel over and over. When you come in the land, do this. And that's where I want us to get a grip because remember what just happened. 13 and 14 is the nation of Israel rebelling against God. They've arrived at their goal. They are slaves in Egypt. They are brought out of Egypt in a mighty victory. God owns Egypt, which we know he does, but he makes it obvious to the world that he rules. 
They leave after 10 plagues. They leave with the wealth of Egypt. The Pharaoh follows and he gets drowned. His armies get drowned in the Red Sea. They are moving through this. And it's from slavery to this pinnacle of victory. And when they arrive there, they simply refuse to do what God has promised they can do. The reason he's brought them there. And actually, they, they refuse and, it's, and I put down here, one of the things we miss is we look at the refusal. It's not some simple career change. But instead, when they hit the promised land, they turned to God and said, yeah, we're not going to believe in you. We're, we're going to reject you. And, and for what they did, they deserved immediate annihilation. The, the, they merited God's immediate acted upon wrath, which God hints to Moses at. He talks to him about. And Moses, of course, prays for them, and God pardons Israel. In 14, they're pardoned. It says God pardons them, but not without the temporal consequences of sin. And that's what two weeks ago we spent a good bit of time talking about, is that Israel, right after they finished not going in the land, what is the first thing they did? Tried to take the land, right? We were wrong. We're going to go take the land. And Moses says, God's not with you. It's not going to work. And, and one of the main points we brought away from that was that we tend to look at sin and we just love to brush away the temporal consequences that sometimes come with sin or oftentimes come with sin. And that generation was told, you're not going to enter the land. They try. And what happens is the first chunk of adults die like they're going to, and as was predicted by Moses. And so you can imagine that you have trekked for a year through the desert out of Egypt. You've come to your goal. You've then rejected God in disbelief. You've been prayed for and pardoned by God. You then say to yourself, I will do God's will my way. That's one of those ways we do that. I'm going to enter the promised land myself. We, we're sorry, God. We're going to go do this. God says, absolutely not. They are crushed by a small town. And now what do you do? Right? What, what, is, what is the mindset of an adult in Israel at this moment? And I wonder if they ask this question, what's next? Let me ask you. You're Israel. You've been told you're going to die in the desert. What's next? What do you get to look forward to if you're 33 in Israel at this time? Yeah. And before you die, what do you get to do? What do they do? What, what's, what's, what happens to them? What do they do? What do they, what do they, they get to raise the next generation and they get to walk in the desert. Remember those grapes that came in with those spies? You're not eating those. Are you raising crops in the desert? The manna that you hate, how, are, how long are you eating that? Until you Die. There is no last meal. They're worse than prisoners on death row. They don't get to pick anything. They're eating manna till they die. Can you imagine being in Israel right now? You, you, you have rejected God. You've tried to do it on your own. God said, absolutely not. And the next question is, what in the world is next? What happens? And I put here, is there any hope or purpose at all? 
And that's the critical nature of chapter 15. If 13 and 14 become the anticlimactic point of numbers, right? There is two peaks to numbers when you see it, right? You're going to get all this census and build up to get into the promised land. Colossal failure. And then the last six chapters are us finding Israel, the next generation entering the promised land. That's the two peaks there. And all the rest is pretty low for them in a lot of context. So what does Israel do? What does the 33-year-old do? What does the 45-year-old do? I'm knocking on that door this year. What does the 55-year-old do? What about the 27-year-old? They're looking at death in the desert. There seems to be zero purpose that's going to come in. And this chapter 15 is what reconnects Israel to their God and reminds them that they're his people and that he is their God. And though it is filled with sacrifice reminders, which are important, it is drawing them to him and to who he is. And so that's why we begin with a clear call to remember God's, and I went too far because that's my tendency, remember God's faithfulness. just want to confuse you. If you take notes, I just messed your paper up. So I hope you have an erasable pen, you know. I might have to supply those. Remember God's faithfulness. If you have um, your Bible, Numbers 15, I'm actually going to read just a couple verses, but I want you to hear the words that he says. And it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When, and that's a really important word, When ye be come into the land of your habitation, which I give unto you. If you jump to verse 17, and 18, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye come into the land, whither I bring you. And I want us to realize something as we see this. Remember God's faithfulness. When he speaks to Moses, um, he is trying to communicate to them it's not an if, it is a when. They're going to go die in the desert. They've rejected God's call to enter and rejected God. They failed they're going to meander to death. God, through his reminders of sacrifice, tells them he is faithful and he will bring his people, who they are, into the promised land. It is not an if, it is when. And that's important for all of us to remember. Our God is forever faithful. And that's a critical point of 15. God is forever faithful and his eternal promises are never if. It is always when. Now, I, I put a note here, even a longer paragraph. This is not an opening, as too many have done, to think we coerce God to do our temporal wishes. Ah, with God, it's not an if, it's a when. So when God makes me a millionaire, when God heals my wife of cancer, when God, see, we'll, we'll grab it to a temporal promise and we'll say we're going to coerce God because God has to do, because it's not an if, it's a when with God on a temporal circumstance. And I've watched people, people who I've seen be strong in the faith and, and at, at the end of a, a hard journey, and I'm not going to pretend it's not, I watch them wrestle with this idea of not being healed or not getting out of a situation temporally because in their mind, they just had enough faith. God has to come through. Well, that's coercing God. But I do want us to pick up on the point that's here. It is never an if with God. It's when. His eternal promises are forever true. It's his promise of eternity, secure in his reminder that they are still his people. That's what he's trying to tell these 33-year-olds, 27-year-olds, 45-year-olds, 55-year-olds. 
A lot of people think, well, this is chapter 15. This is, this is to the next generation. No, this is actually to the current generation. And he's telling them, you're going to look forward. You're not entering this land, but it, they will. Your children will. The next generation is coming. And that reminder of his faithfulness is tucked into his requirement of sacrifice that connects to being in the land. Now, he, he, he's going to talk about and, one, and will make an offering by fire unto the Lord, a burnt offering, or a sacrifice in performing a vow. This is verse 3. Or in a freewill offering, or in your solemn feast, to make a sweet savor unto the Lord of the herd or of the flocks. Do they have animals right now? They have a ton of animals. They can make burnt offerings. Then shall he that offereth his offering unto the Lord bring a meat offering of a tenth deal of flour mingled with the fourth part of a hen of oil, and the fourth part of a hen of wine, for a drink offering shalt thou prepare with the burnt offering or sacrifice for one lamb. And then all the way through, all the way to the end of 21, he's going to talk about if you bring an offering of a lamb and you're in the land, I want you to bring flour and I want you to bring oil and I want you to bring wine. Fruit of grapes, where do they get the oil from? It's not vegetable oil, so olive oil, Right? And you're going to have your grain. How, do, how can you have grain? How do you have flour? Where does that come from? You have to farm. To farm, you have to be in one place. You have to sow seed. You have to grow a crop. What does that imply if you're farming in a land? You're established. You're occupied. You're there. You're, you, the, whole, the whole 20 verses about the sacrifice, about the burnt offering, and he goes from a lamb. And what's interesting, when you offer a lamb, you give this much grain, this much oil, this much wine. Then you offer a ram, which is bigger, more costly, and you give more grain, more oil, more wine. If you get all the way up to a bowl, you even get higher amounts of grain, wine. And a hen is about two liters. It's not a small grain offering. But everything that surrounds a burnt offering, everything... And remember, they have the animals. Nothing's changing. God is pointing them to when you're in the land, you're going to add grain, and you're going to add oil, and you're going to add wine. You're going to give these other components that only come when you're where? Established. When you're in the farmland. When you're in a place of milk and honey. And then he calls them. He's saying, when you're in the land, I want you to remember to be faithful to worship. So we're to remember God's faithfulness, and God's eternal faithfulness is not an if, it's when. And then God's call to us is to be faithful in worship. When he talks about the sacrifice system, it is them worshiping. It is them bringing an offering. It is them coming to the tabernacle. It's offering this animal. It is, it's honoring God. It's a pleasing aroma to God. This is worship. That's what he's talking about. Be faithful to worship. I put as a note, and I, I just mentioned it, obviously, the increasing sacrifice, this idea that you will be fruitful, that you will be able to give this. And these sacrifice requirements close with yet another affirmation of entry, and it's a call to remember in thanksgiving the provision of God. And actually, what we're about to read in 17 through 21, Jews still do to this day. They'll take a pinch of dough and throw it into the fire. They'll take a pinch of something and give that first fruit. It's symbolic of what is taking place here. And it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and saying to them, When you come into the land, whither I bring you, then it shall be that when ye eat of the bread of the land, ye shall offer up 
and heave offering unto the Lord. He shall offer up a cake of the first of your dough for a heave offering. As you do the heave offering of the threshing floor, so shall you heave it or offer it, give it up. Of the first of your dough you shall give unto the Lord and heave offering in your generations. In other words, it says you're going to come into the land, and when you offer a burnt offering, you're going to add all these other components that come from the land, this, this establishment that you're there. God has fulfilled his promise. He's faithful. You be faithful in worship. And I want us to recognize something, and I'm going to mention it again. When you fail miserably, when life has gone sideways, when, when it's all wrong and you've done the worst you can do, the reality is this. What is your path back look to god and his character and be faithful in worship not go to some mountaintop not go off on your own not go find yourself not go find some other way be faithful in worship israel has failed miserably and is staring at a purposeless wandering it's a consequence of their sin and in that moment they needed to see god's faithfulness that he is not fickle but is forever true to his eternal word and then they needed to be called toward faithful worship i want you to see the flow of that it is not a bootstrap mentality you've blown it go make things right oftentimes we think that get your life in order those are things that will happen hey take care of yourself fix you that's garbage. You failed in crushing sin, then you look to God who doesn't fail ever. You look to his character and his faithfulness, and then you want an action step, and notice what worship is. Who does worship focus on? God. It is most definitely not who? It's not us. And think about how often we blow it, and what is our next priority? us how i'm going to fix it how i'm not going to do this how my life will get right i will not fall back in and i'm not i'm not saying it's not good to get your life cleaned up if the addict falls off the wagon and ends up blind drunk and and making a mess of it and they're going to get back in and this is the thing i see over and over again you know what they fixate on what they're going to do and yes, they need to make life change and it will happen, but their focus is wrong because it comes right back to what is the problem and it's themselves. We're our problem. That's why when we start forgetting who God is, it's when Satan can have a heyday with our life and our character. If you failed miserably, and even if you haven't, if you get the, get the idea here, you are fixated on who God is. And if you're looking for that supposed action step, then it's faithfulness to worship him. Things are not going well, no matter what the situation, if worship is chopped off the block. I've seen it. From preachers down to anyone, if worship of God gets chopped off the block because of some emotional trauma that you're going through, I guarantee you something's off. Because worship is never supposed to be cut off. You look to God's faithfulness, and then you are faithful to worship Him and who He is. That's what we need. When we fail, as they did, and we will do, we fix our hope upon His character of faithfulness, and we're drawn toward faithful worship 
as he describes, not according to our whim. Why all the detail? I mean, he's down to, if you offer a lamb, you give this many hens of this, and it's close to an ephah of this, and it's this. And then if you do a, a ram, we're going to ramp it up by a third. And if you do a bull, we're going to go up a little bit more. And when you're in the land, make sure you make sure you take a heave offering, and you're going to throw the dough. You're going to make sure. And remember, when you see all the offering and the sacrifices, you are seeing worship. God is detailing his worship. The solution is never seeking ourselves, finding ourselves, or fixing ourselves. We're not looking for a new path. The solution is always Him and faithful worship of Him. When you're dealing with somebody who's broken, a believer, and you wonder, what in the world? How can I help them? Because that is, a, that is a, a, a daunting conversation. I don't know if you've ever had those before. And, and here's the thing. If we're the body of Christ, the reality is we're going to have these conversations. We fail. Uh, we're a body of broken people that are coming together to hold each other up. And when you're seeing that, what do you do? And, and, and doesn't mean, and I always say, don't do it self-righteously. It's something worse. And we well, just got to worship, you know, and you throw something out there tritely. But you are trying to focus their eyes on their maker, on God and who he is, on the stability. Yeah, they failed. They've stumbled. They don't know how in the world they'll ever be true or be strong. Well, in and of ourselves, we cannot. But in him, we can. And so what do we do? We fix our hope on him. And then when they need, and we do, we're humans. We need a response to this. And that response is worship, which is, again, physically focusing on him. Now, as you remember God's faithfulness, and, and they needed to remember it, to remember that he is their purpose no matter where they may be walking, and they are walking nowhere. Yet as they walk this life, it was important that they also, and we're going to get to this one, remember God's law. I think this is critical yet again in our society. Why? We are a society that rejects God's authority. Now, we reject authority as, as a whole, but I love hearing people say, well, I don't go to church because of the people in church. I don't, and this is it's so trite, it's been used over and over. If you use this, stop, because it's ridiculous to begin with, and it's even more ridiculous now. The reason is people don't want to remember God's law. They want to do things their way. I don't want you to tell me what God has said to do. And so in our desperate attempt to be our own gods, even as believers, we will struggle and kick and push against what God has directed us to do. The reality of a sin-stricken world is what? Sin, right? Yet that doesn't make sin acceptable or casual. And that's what we've done. We live in a sin-stricken world, and we know it's sin-stricken, so we don't, we don't have to, I'm not saying that we get numb to it. That's the, the wrong. That makes it casual. That makes it acceptable. But we do have to live with the reality that we live in a sin-filled world with sinful people, which we are one of them. And so there's a reality of sin in a sin-stricken world. And so instead of making it acceptable or casual, what we're called to do is remember God's law and react according to His law when it's broken. I'm going to read a, a, a longer chunk of Scripture, 22 through 31. 
And I want us to see two things here. Be aware of sin, the idea of unintentional sin, and then be aware of our heart, attitude, inclination, motive, when it deals with this idea of sinning with a, um, some versions will say a high hand, others will say presumptuously. Uh, both words kind of communicate this idea of, I don't care what God thinks, I'll do it anyway. So verse 22 and if you've erred and not observed all these commandments, which the Lord hath spoken unto Moses, even all that the Lord hath commanded you by the hand of Moses from the day that the Lord commanded Moses and henceforward among your generations, which a lot of words to say this, if you mess up, which you have no excuse to do so because you've heard about it since I've been talking to Moses and he's been sharing it with you, you don't have an excuse to come and say, I didn't know about that. Moses is, God's stripping that away from them. By the way, church, you don't have an excuse for this sin. You can't come and say, oh, I just couldn't figure it out. Read your Bible. You can figure it out. And God is that blunt here in what he's saying. Get into your, his word. Know what he said. He's holding Israel accountable to what he said, and he is for sure holding us accountable to what he said, and you have it. So be in his word. There's no, I didn't know. You did know. You have his Bible, and you've got 24 hours in the day. He expects you to know his word. Goes on, then it shall be if aught be committed by ignorance without the knowledge of the congregation. In other words, we've done some wrong that we didn't do in a motive that was to reject God or attack God. It says that all the congregation shall offer one young bullock for a burnt offering for a sweet savor unto the Lord with his meat offering and his drink offering according to the manner and one kid of the goats for a sin offering. Here is a congregational kind of look at saying we recognize that we're probably have done things wrong and didn't even know it. And this sense, and we're held accountable for it. And we're gonna have a sacrifice and we're gonna follow through with how God described in those previous verses. And the priest shall make an atonement for all the congregation of the children of Israel, and it shall be forgiven them, for it is ignorance, and they shall bring their offering, a sacrifice made by fire unto the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their ignorance. And again, this is not saying you didn't have a chance to know about it, poor you were never taught. This is you did this unintentionally. That's the idea behind it. Because he just told you, you've heard all this since I've been talking to Moses. It goes on there, and it says, um, And it shall be forgiven all the congregation of the children of Israel and the stranger that sojourneth among them, seeing all the people were in ignorance. And notice right here in, this, in this, this chapter 15, reminding Israel that they're God's people, he is reaching out to the stranger in the land, and he's going to pull them right into the body of Israel, he's going to say, you're my people too. You follow the same rules, you're under the same blessing, you're under the same guidance that's there. And then it says, if any soul sin, another individual, through ignorance, then he shall bring a she-goat of the first year for a sin offering, and the priest shall make an atonement for the soul that sinneth ignorantly, when he sinneth by ignorance before the Lord. You say ignorant or not, don't they? they? They want you to understand that this is unintentional. This is not blatant rejection of God. This is not a high-handed, presumptuous arrogance that's coming against God saying, I'll do what I want. That's why the Bible repeats itself. And as, if you know, whatever God says is important, whatever God repeats should really be clanging in our head like he's making a point about sin here. It must be dealt with and they're responsible for it. But he's addressing their heart, which we're going to get to later when we get to the end. But um, you go on to this, it says, and the priest shall make an atonement, the soul that sinneth ignorantly, when he sinneth by ignorance before the Lord, to make an atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. Ye shall have one law for him that sinneth through ignorance, both for him that is born 
among the children of Israel and for the stranger that sojourneth among them. In other words, God is extending his forgiveness to the stranger that is not a Jew, but is tying in to be God's people. But the soul, and this is 30 and 31, this is the contrast, but the soul that doth ought presumptuously, whether he be born in the land or a stranger, the same reproacheth the Lord, and that soul shall be cut off from among his people, because he hath despised the word of the Lord and hath broken his commandment, that soul shall utterly be cut off, his iniquity shall be upon him. Now in two verses, what happens to this person? Cut off. They are cut off. They are cut off. They are utterly cut off is what he's saying. Now I want us to remember, was he, we look at remembering God's law. One, we need to be aware of sin. I want us to notice something, and I mention it. I'm going to say it one more time. They dealt with sin. Whether it's a congregation bringing an offering, knowing that they have erred as a group of people, or an individual that says, I know I've erred. I, haven't, I didn't do it intentionally, but this was a way that I erred. It's not a high-handed, presumptuous sin. This is not someone saying, I don't care what God says or his law. I'm going to do it openly. I'm going to blatantly disregard God's authority. The church today, and I just want you to understand this, we're called to this very awareness of sin and to deal with it as well. 1 John 1, 8 through 10 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now hear those verses and go over what we just read. Deal with sin. If you've sinned unintentionally, then what does God call the church to do? Confess your sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive the sins. But what do you need to do with sin? You need to what? Conf you, have to, you, have to, you have to drive awareness of it. Y your unintentional sin needs to be dealt with. You know, well, you know, well, God understands. That guy cut me off. He gets it. That's casualness. That's not what's prescribed in Numbers, and that's not what's prescribed in 1 John. And, and in the New Testament, you're, you're, you're hearing, and we've talked about this in Leviticus, you're going to hear the echo of what's there. We're hearing God telling the church, deal with sin, be aware of sin. What did he tell the nation of Israel after failure? Be aware of sin. There is pardon for sin, but it must be dealt with. We are to go to him and ask forgiveness. Now, this section closes with high-handed sin presumptuous sin and the response was judgment the israelite or stranger among them would be cut off from israel now when it says cut off this means someone who is not caught god would cut off he would make sure he dealt with this person you think you high-handedly sin against god in the woods he'll deal with you we're going to watch the next illustration which is hard to wrap our mind around as 21st century living beings right now in the age of grace the age of the church but it is it's going to share something to us but see god already starts articulating this idea of presumptuous sin and he says they have despised the word of the lord they have trampled what god said and i i want us to understand something when he says that and, and apply it to today, how do you trample God's word? How do you chew it up underneath your feet because you will not submit yourself 
to what he says. That's high-handed sin. And that's where I say the first part is be aware of sin, that God doesn't just say, well, it's unintentional, it's done in ignorance, it's okay, just let it go, let it go. You did it on accident, don't worry about it. No. He prescribes awareness of sin and dealing with it. But here it's a call to be aware of our heart. See, Israel needed to be aware of sin and aware of their propensity to sin in a high-handed way. We need the same clear reminder, and we need to truly follow God's prescribed response when dealing with sin. Yet the warning at the end, the reality of high-handed sin, sinning presumptuously, sinning with that I'm better than God, God doesn't speak to me, God doesn't tell me what to do, that needs to be on our mind because we are a very presumptuous generation. We are constantly high-handed. How are we high-handed? Well, self-justification is one of them. It's my life, it's my circumstances, my career, it's who I am. God made me this way, this is what I do. If he didn't want me to get angry, he shouldn't put anger in me. That's his fault. we, We justify anything we want to do. Well, we have our whole world, which we talked about, uh, in Judges, right? The whole immorality, the, 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 at that context, the rampant perversion. Uh, you got a host of people that will claim the name of Christ and say, yeah, but God made me this way. That's why I do this. Oh, that's high-handed sin. I'm not going to negate a struggle. I'm not going to argue with them that they may have a problem with this that, that they're wrestling with. But when you say, oh, well, this is how God made me. I get to do what I want to do. Well, that's a convenient out. Because then we're all going to find our little wiggle room and get out. And, and I say that because we tend to be very high-handed. Self-justification or our own version of self-righteousness. What does self-righteousness do, right? I look down on someone else so that I can look good myself. I keep my rules. I'm better than you because I keep the rules I made. I hope so. They're your rules. But you don't keep the other rules. You don't keep God's rules. What do the Pharisees get condemned for? Well, you'll make sure you follow through on what man has said, but you'll negate what God has said. Self-righteousness is a great way to be a high-handed sinner, to make doable what I've made the rule, and neglect what is more difficult and what is real, high-handed sin. And with that in mind, I say be aware of our hearts, and I, and I would say examine your heart closely. And, and with that in mind, ask yourself this question, How high-handed have we become in our sin? How arrogant is our sin? How presumptuous is our sin? Because I am afraid that as I examine my life, I see more high-handedness than I see ignorance. That I see a lot of presumptuousness and a lot less unintentional sin that I need to make an offering for if that makes sense. How high-handed have we become in our sin? And then with that caution in mind, with the idea of clear and swift judgment of that type of sin, we're driven to a narrative that is to cause us to remember God's holiness. And when we wrestle with self-justification and self-righteousness and a sense of distance and we're better than or I have the right to do, right? I'm better than them because I keep my rules and they don't, 
or I have the right to do because whatever circumstance or decision I've made, I have the right to do this. And yes, I know the Bible says not to, but I have the right to. I have the right to or I'm better than. That mindset has forgotten God's holiness. Holiness is being set apart, is being set apart for him. It is this, it's, it's a concept that actually when we simplify it too much, we lose it. Because you're only set apart, you're set apart to purity, you're, you're in God's holiness, his perfection, his untaintableness, he cannot be corrupted with sin. And here in this story, 32 through 36, because it's a, I think, a hard story to read, a guy gathers sticks and he gets stoned for it. So just process that. Picked up sticks on Saturday, stoned to death for doing it. So let's be fair to ourselves. We're wondering how that works, but it's about God's holiness. This is what we have to keep in mind. So 32 says, and while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man that gathered sticks upon the Sabbath day. And they that found him gathering sticks brought him unto Moses and Aaron and unto all the congregation. And they put him in ward, prison, chained him up, locked him up, roped him up, whatever it is, because it was not declared what should be done to him. And you might be thinking, he's gathering sticks. Ease up a little bit. Well, if you go back to Exodus, it says that if you do any work on the Sabbath, you're supposed to be put to death. And then the next verse says, if you start a fire, done. So in other words, here is a man with a premeditated idea to break God's law. He's also working on the Sabbath. And they put him in the word. And the Lord said unto Moses, the man shall be surely put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones without the camp. And all the congregation brought him without the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died as the Lord commanded Moses. As I mentioned, you go to Exodus 35, 2 through 3, you got the law there. Don't light a fire. That's why they ask God, what do we do? He hasn't lit a fire, but he's gathering things to make a fire. And I want you to see the man's disposition. He knows the law. Don't work on the Sabbath. Don't make a fire on the Sabbath. Honor God. Remember God's holiness, the set-apart nature. I can think with this man. I think all of us can, can't we? Kind of a little chilly. Want to cook my manna. Want to do, I don't know, what's entering his mind. What's that independent mindset that comes in, that pride, the worship of self, the lack of authority? At some point, he's saying to himself, there's two million people. I'm going to get some sticks, I'm going to light a fire, and I'm not really concerned about what a few people think about it. Because he has forgotten God's holiness. When we justify, we've forgotten who God is. And we've specifically forgotten that he is holy. I want to be open. It's hard to read it because I'm still like, sticks. The guy died for sticks. That's, that's what he died for. But he died because he was high-handed. In this illustration, the man was gathering wood and was caught doing so. And the nation sought the Lord because they wanted to make sure and then God makes clear the man was sinning in a high-handed way and he faced the immediate consequences. What's the takeaway? Think if you're Israel. You have no purpose but to wander the desert and obey God's law. And now somebody gathered sticks and God's law says, die. Would that wake you up? Would this shock them? Who stoned him? Yeah, this involved the nation. What's our takeaway? Well, this is the same as for Israel. Wake up. 
wake up to the reality of God's holiness and stop dragging it down because that's what that man was doing. God says don't do any work on the Sabbath. God says don't light a fire. God says to honor my name. God says to keep me holy. God says to be set apart. God says to do this. And what did he say to all of that? Nah. He despised his word and faced the consequences. And the nation of Israel would have the same drastic move that we would have had. That guy died picking up sticks. But the picking up sticks represented somebody who didn't care that God is holy and called his people to be holy with him. We should be striving to live up to God's holiness, not attempting to lower it to where we are. I've said this a thousand times. I hate the country songs that want Jesus to roam around with you doing your stupid stuff. Because that is attempting to grab Jesus and pull him down to where you are. And I know why it appeals to people. It appeals to us. Because it's a lot easier to negate his holiness than to live with it. But you can't erase it. I said, ask yourself this now. In your daily function of life, because I want to remind you of what gathering sticks was. It's called turning on the stove. It's very daily. <laughs> In your daily function of life, how aware are you of God's holiness? When I wrote that question, that one just clanged in my head like a bell. Because it's this idea of, great, <coughs> you guys are here on Wednesday. My guess is your, your knowledge of his holiness on a Sunday and during worship is heightened, maybe beyond what others may be. But what about everyday life? Turning on the oven, paying the propane bill, I don't know, paying the electric bill. You're literally making fire here to be aware of his holiness. How aware are we of God's holiness? And then as we wander from this, because I love to give more than introspective questions. So if you walk away from this, you say, I'm not aware of his holiness at all. When I'm driving, <coughs> when I'm reading, when I'm working, wherever you may be. And then, but when you are aware of it, how do you respond to it? What does it do? What does it drive you to? Now, this chapter of reminders doesn't end with this big, massive consequence. It actually closes with prevention of sin. Gordon Wenham wrote this, Prevention is better than cure. I think we'd all agree with that, right? If I can prevent cancer, it's better than getting cured of cancer. I'd rather never get it then get over it, right? I'd rather not have it. Prevention is better. And that's what 37 through 41, I wrote in my one of the study Bibles I have, I have a, a journaling Bible, and I write a lot of stuff on the side of it. And really, I love it because the font's bigger, and they space it out, which makes it easier for my eyes not to flip back and forth on the text, just to prove 45 is destroying my vision. So, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments <coughs> throughout their generations and that they put the fringe of the borders, a ribbon of blue. In other words, it is distinctively going to have a blue tone to it. And it shall be unto you for a fringe. And this is 39. I wrote, I circled 39 and wrote the word key next to it. This is, this is, this is the turnkey part of this chapter. It says, and it shall be unto you for a fringe that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord. 
and do them. And that you seek not after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you used to go a-whoring. How about that for a blunt statement? I want you to put tassels on the corner of your garment everywhere. So imagine I have tassels. It's a shirt, so it's different what they wore. But it's the tassels here and tassels there and tassels hanging here. And I can't avoid tassels, right? I move my arms a lot, but even if you're just... You can't miss the tassels, right? At some point, you're going to see tassels. And God says, put this on there so that you'll remember what I said and do what I said instead of doing what you keep doing, which is chasing after yourself. And he goes to 40, that ye may remember and do all my commandments. And how does it end? And be what? Holy unto your God. You be holy unto your God. You be set apart to God. I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. As you look at that, and I want you to see what they're called to, is they're called to remember God how often? Constantly. Being God's people requires constant connection to who God is and to following his commands. They added blue tassels. Blue was what was wrapped over the ark. Blue curtains were on the tabernacle. These tassels would remind them of God and of following God, obeying and acting as his children. <coughs> and this practical action is the key to the whole process. Yet, as we're going to see in the following chapters, Israel just trips over themselves to sin. The next chapter is Korah literally rebelling against Moses, saying, I'm as good as you, I can be a leader, I don't have authority. Dotham and Abithium, I might have mispronounced it, but I'll read them right the next week. They're going to go and want to rule. One wants to be high priest, one wants to rule. God's going to punish them, and Israel's going to get angry at Moses for it. Then they're going to rebel against God, he's going to send snakes. They're going to incessantly fail. You know who else is going to fail in the middle of all this? By chapter 20, 21? Moses is going to fail. And he's going to share the fate of all of Israel, not going to enter the promised land, going to die in the desert, chased out of Egypt into the desert, marries the desert lady, part of that, has children, going to bring the God's people in the, the promised land, blows it in the desert, dies in the desert, which, by the way, it's going to make Psalm 90 very poignant because that's his prayer. And, and on Thanksgiving and praise, I'll be preaching through Psalm 90. Our song for November is Psalm 90. It's titled, Satisfy Us With Your Love, uh, done by Shane and Shane, but we'll all be singing as a congregation. Phenomenal song that's going to drive us to find our fulfillment in Him. And one of the points I'm going to make, so don't skip the sermon because there's beef brisket afterwards, so even if I pre-preach it here to you, one of the points I'm going to make is Moses is a desert wanderer as well, dies in the desert. But he understood something that all of Israel needed to understand. What is your purpose? God is. That's your purpose. That had to be driven into Israel. I'm wandering in the desert waiting to die. I've got 40 years before I just keel over. I have no purpose. And God says, yes, you do. I'm your purpose. The principle has to be applied, right? We must constantly be aware of God, His commands, and our calling to be holy unto your God. 
Be set apart unto God. Remember God constantly. Not because you're chained to him, not because it's laborious, not because it's use. Oh, i got to do this. I'm a Christian. i got to think about God all the time. That's what I have to do. I've claimed the name of Christ, so i got to think about Christ. No, your purpose is to remember God constantly. You know what you're going to do in heaven? Worship God constantly. Who do you think about in heaven? God. You know what's great about heaven? You're not going to be confused with sin. But you're going to worship God constantly. And so you're dealing with a nation. And I want you to go all the way back. You're 27. You just found out you're dying in the desert. 40 years from now. Your people, your children, are going to enter the promised land. But you're not. You're wandering. You're not growing crops. You're not eating grapes. You're eating manna. Maybe a sheep once in a while when you make a burnt offering and get to have a feast. That'll encourage offering one. If the only time you got to eat meat was offering, I'll be every day. Hey, let's offer something up. It's time to go. But understand this. This is what you're staring at. It feels absolutely like a waste. But God says, I am your purpose. Be holy unto your God. Now, I've kind of sidetracked from my notes here, which happens sometimes. I'm, like I said, pre-preaching a sermon, Psalm 90, so that's the danger, and I'm out of time, so I'll stop doing that. But I want us to fixate on this idea of being satisfied in Him, contentment. Uh, it's not just that you're happy with nothing. It's the fact that your purpose is aligned in Him and not something else. Now, the idea of remembering, because that's this driving point of this passage. We're not tying tassels on our clothes today. So how are we keeping God constantly on our mind? Or maybe a first question is, do we even submit to keeping God constantly on mind? Process that one first. Because you have to process that I'm going to submit to God to think about him. Because what is one of the most independent things we can do? Think whatever we want. You could be at work, and they can make you do what they want you to do, but they can't get your mind, can they? That's one of the frontiers of independence, of me. I'll be doing this, but I'll be thinking that, right? The little boy says, I'm sitting down on the outside, right? But I'm standing on the inside. What I'm thinking is that I'm thinking I'm standing. So it is a big submission question. To remember God constantly is giving over to God your mind. Your right to that last frontier of independence. But let's say we come to that, assume a yes, how could that function today? And I'd love for us to dialogue, but we're a little bit out of time. So if you have something, just shout it out. I'm going to throw a few things. Uh, pray throughout the day. That's a way to submit your mind to Him, to be cognitive of Him. Uh, be purpose-centered on Him. Don't get caught up in our own fulfillment or drive and miss the eternal one. Visual cues, and I'm just getting into practical things. Verses on the desk. I have a verse from Psalm 119 from our study. Now, I used to memorize in a second and never forget. My brain is not as sharp as it used to be. And so I stare at that verse. I've done push-ups, which is not a lot, so it's not really fair. Uh, looking at that verse, I, I, I see the verse, and I keep telling myself, why are you struggling to remember this verse? But I have that verse there because it reminds me of something. It hit me. And so I put it on my desk. It's just printed on paper, and it's there, so I'll look at it. I want to see verses. Uh, Pop-up reminders on phones. Thinking eternally about people. That's how we think about God. Thinking 
his thoughts, seeing people through his eyes. If you have more, maybe next week, Wednesday, we'll chat about it. But how do we get this idea of being holy unto our God? We need to remember God at all times. And that becomes most critical as we move from deep failure. The solution to failure is never us. It is only him. So next week, we're going to dive into chapters 16 through 19. I doubt I'll finish them. I'm just going to be up front <laughs> that out the gate. But it carries us to the transition. It carries us to movement. So read those, dive in. I do want to hint, um, as we're finishing up numbers, we'll be moving into a series on, on apologetics, very street-level apologetics, working through understanding our faith and, and, and being able to defend our faith. But as we're in numbers, gobble up what's there. Take some time to read it. Get a grip of, of the rebellion. Get a grip of God's response, God's affirmation of Aaron, that God is Aaron's inheritance. These are critical things that are going to pop up in these chapters. You're going to get to a red heifer for purification. You're going to see Eliezer woven in. So just there's a lot that happens that carries them to wandering and more sin and on to the end.